Hi there, and welcome to episode 12 of the Flyby. It's a bit of a hodgepodge this episode as we cover board games, trick-taking games, tiling games, co-ops, and dice games. Lindsay leads us off with one of my all-time favorites, Concordia. Next, Mason shows us his mean side with the trick-taker Stiekel. Ruth is back and back to her sweet self in Cacao. Stephanie gives us a few hints as to why Mysterium was the perfect game for a recent gathering, and Sarah rolls us out with Roll for the Galaxy. Take it away, Lindsay. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm talking about Concordia, a 2-5 player economic strategy game. It has elements of deck building and card drafting, some good old hand management and set collection I believe. It's designed by Matt Gertz who also did some of the artwork for the game along with Marina Ferenbach. It's been through several publishers but the copy I have was published by PD Verlag. Concordia is around 90 minutes long but as usual it depends on number of players and how you play. Concordia is themed around ancient Rome where you are colonising over the land and set up your trades to different provinces. The trades are food, iron, brick, wine and cloth. You each have a set number of cards to use each turn in order to colonise and each card represents a cut action you can take. An architect, for example, allows you to move your colonists, meeples or boats along the route spaces. Or a Mercator card allows you to trade two types of good and receive coins. You take turns back and forth, plan the cards in your hand, and you can also use a Senator card to pick up two personality cards that are available to all players, which in turn cost you a type of good or two. These can go straight into your hands, and when you run out of cards to play, or you decide you want to pick up your deck and start again, you play a Tribune card. Depending on the number of cards you've played, you receive coins which will count towards scoring later on, and then you can begin again. And I'll talk about end scoring in a bit. Any of the personality cards purchased are then replaced, and when the last one has been bought, this is one of the end of game triggers. I find Concordia to be a smooth ride, and one that can often go two ways for me. Depends on my mood, I can be like, okay, I'm just going to do stuff and see what happens. Not hoping for the best and doing whatever, but just kind of cracking on with it. It's possible to do that in Concordia. I find that you can have a TV show on or a movie in the background or maybe some good tunes. You don't really have to talk to each other, you can just get on with the game. But sometimes when I'm in the mood, I can get involved in some proper strategizing, or at least trying. And of course, strategy is what you need in order to receive your end of game points. For each province you are in, for types of goods you can trade, for the cities you're in and what they produce, and for the amount of colonists on your board you receive points. But it's the personality cards that you pick up with a senator that boost these points because a set of these is then your multiplier. So this is really where careful planning and thought and consideration has gone into it and you collect a decent amount of each card and you can really clean up in the points scoring department, hopefully. Also, if you got into trading some higher priced goods and end up with a lot of cash, that will also give you a good start. If you're the last person to pick a personality card, you receive the Concordia card, which will give you another added bonus. So I really like the end of game scoring because it's not points for everything, it's points you really feel you've earned or didn't. Because this is also the point where you wish you'd just got one more card or pay closer attention to what your opponent was picking up. But as I said, this is very much a multi-solitaire game. You can easily do your own thing and not really interact too much at all, aside from maybe getting a bit huffy because your opponent took the card you had your eye on. And some people might not like this game because it does have very minimal interaction. But some might really enjoy the fact that it is very chilled out with hardly any conflict at all. You can all build on the same cities, but if another player is present, you have to pay double the amount of money to set up shop there as well. Additionally, when you use the Prefect card, which lets you pick up a good from a certain city, as well as a good printed on the tile, other players will receive a good as well. I love the Prefect card because I enjoy the trading aspect. And I especially like to get into Koth cities because they're where the money's at. I feel there's a lot of gain in Concordia and it's a nice feeling. 
Often the game can last for a long time because there is no set rounds. You're just kind of taking turns and deciding when your own personal round, if you will, will end. But I don't think that's a bad thing because the game has a sort of flow to it where it just keeps on going. I've played Concordia 2 player quite a bit and it's a very nice two player game. But with 2 plus, I can imagine it could go on for quite some time whilst all the players carry out their actions. But again, with 2 players, because it's so rapid, you have less time to strategize in between turns. There are a few expansions for Concordia. I was tempted for some time to get the Salser expansion, which is actually the salt trade if you want to get technical. And having said that, now I'm just really hungry for nachos. And this is a game where I actually think an expansion is welcome because when you've played it often and you're essentially repeating the same actions, you get a bit too familiar with it. And maybe that's why I find it such a chilled out game. So if I was to get an expansion for it, I, you know, I think it would be a good time. The artwork isn't spectacular. It's all fairly basic, but it really is inconsequential. Concordia is one of those games where you can take or leave fancy artwork and that's not to say it's not an attractive game but it's nothing to write home about but ultimately that doesn't really matter. If you want to hear and see more from me you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel Shiny Have Meeples or pop my blog www.shinyhavemeeplesblog.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter capital S capital H Meeples. Bye for now. Hi I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Stiegeln. I love trick-taking games, but I'm not very good at them. Uh, before we started playing hobby board games around five years ago, we played a lot of hearts. We mostly played hearts because I'm extremely, extremely bad at spades. I can never get the bidding right, and no one ever wants to be my partner. I don't blame them, I really am just atrocious at it. After we got heavily into modern games, we mostly stopped playing all the classic trick-takers except when we get together with Megan's family. Megan and her dad and grandmother regularly beat me at hearts, but I like it anyway. Because so much of our game time is two-player, we don't really even play that many modern trick-taking games. Most of them are three-player minimum, and many of them are best at four. There are a few two-player card games like this that work and are fun, Diamonds being notable among them, uh, as well as some new things I've heard about recently that I'm very interested to play this year. So anytime I have the opportunity to play trick-taking games with a group of people, I usually try to make it happen. I played Stiegeln for the first time last week, and I liked it so much that I taught it to the family almost immediately, and now I'm telling you about it. Stiekeln, and that's spelled S-T-I-C-H-E-L-N, uh, was designed by Klaus Polish and first published in Germany by Amigospiel in 1993. Stiekeln is one of those games I'd wish I'd known about 20 years ago. Here's a quick rundown of the gameplay. The deck has, in a four-player game, five colors, and each color is numbered 0 through 11. At the beginning of each hand, you deal out the entire deck, and each player picks what's called a pain suit. In Stiekeln, when you take tricks, cards of your pain suit count against you at their face value, and all the other cards only count one point in your favor. So right away, you should know that this game is mean. If you or anyone you play with is thin-skinned about deep and strategic and hateful screwage, Stiekeln should be avoided at all costs. When you lead a trick in Stiekeln, instead of following suit, other players are free to play whatever card they like. And instead of the lead suit being the winning suit, it's every other suit that takes the trick. So if I lead a green 5, even if the player to my left plays a red 1, they are still winning the trick. Besides the lead suit, any other cards played win the trick by simply being the highest number. In case of a tie, say two players both played fives, whoever played the card first wins the trick. Unlike some more traditional trick takers, where you either A, want to win as many hands as possible, or B, want to try to take as few cards as possible, Stiekeln constantly puts you in the position of wanting to take as few of your pain cards as possible, but still win hands to help stack up positive points. In general, this makes every single card play somewhat of a gamble unless you're in last chair. For the most part, it's very good to be the last person to play their card in the hand, but toward the end of the round, it can also be very, very bad. 
While the rules of Stiegel are simple, it's also highly counterintuitive if you're already familiar with other games in the genre. It wasn't until the last round of my first game that I really felt like I started to make some slightly strategic decisions. Like most very good card games of this type, a lot of the decisions you make are based around two important factors. The number and value of cards already played from each suit, and maybe more importantly, personalities and psychology of the other people sitting at the table with you. The better you know the other players, the easier it will be to make some decent assumptions about what they're going to do next. In most cases, the best assumption you can make is that the other three people at the table are going to screw you as badly as they can, so it's in your best interest to try and screw them first. Stiegel means something sort of like poking or jiving or teasing or taunting, or what we might say in English is needling. In fact, the German card art features porcupines holding various instruments that one might poke someone else with. Toothpicks, hat pins, needles, etc. I really do want to stress that while I think this is a pretty genius spin on other trick-taking games, it is an extremely mean entry into this category. If you are unwilling to play very dirty and very mean at every opportunity, you have absolutely no chance of playing Stiegeln competitively. Stiegeln is unlikely to be on the shelf at your local game store unless they specialize in imports. There's not a current English language printing of this game, but that's okay because you don't even need a copy of the game to play it. There's a very cheap and not particularly great game called Rage put out by Ideal Toys that you need to go out and buy yourself a couple of copies of. I recently picked up two decks from Amazon for about $4 a piece. Now, the cards are of very mass market quality, think Uno, Skipbow, etc., but that's okay because if you wear them out, you can just buy more cheap copies. So feel free to bridge shuffle your Rage cards all you want. As a hobby board game enthusiast, you need to own a couple of copies of Rage because it comes in six colored suits numbered 0 to 15. There's a great list over on BoardGameGeek with several hundred games you can play with one or two Rage decks. Pretty much every Reiner Knizia game, as well as lots of other classics, are easily playable with these suits and numbers. We'll post a link to this geek list in the show notes, or you can at me on Twitter and I'll send you the link. Stiegel only requires a single Rage deck, and you can play with up to six players. If you feel you need a real copy of the game, it'll cost you around $20 shipped. On the plus side, the card quality is absolutely fantastic, at the same level you'd expect from any of the Amigo Spiel postcard box games. The current edition is published by Nuremberger Verlag, but if you just search for Stiegel on Amazon, it'll pop up. And of course, you can also play any of the mini games playable with a Rage deck with your real copy of Stiegel. So, who should buy Stiegel? People who like trick-taking games. People with a high tolerance for Take That and Screwage. People who play with a relatively regular group of other very thick-skinned gamers. People who don't regularly play with angry table flippers. And people who have absolutely no compunction about piling negative points against their 86-year-old grandmother, thereby dropping her into last place. I give Stiegel 11 out of 11... I can't believe you laid that off on me, you absolute bastards. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I wanted to talk about a tiling game designed by Phil Walker-Harding. But I'm not talking about his latest hit, Baron Park, but instead about Cacao, which was published in 2015 by Abacus Spiel and Z-Man Games, with art from Klaus Steffen. Kakao places two to four players in the role of tribal chiefs hoping to turn their village into the most prosperous society around, with that path to prosperity coming from the harvest and trade of precious cacao. Interestingly, for a tile-laying game, in Kakao there are two types of tile being placed, jungle tiles and worker tiles. As they are placed, the two types will form a checkerboard pattern on the table, as two tiles of the same type cannot be placed orthogonally next to one another. The jungle tiles will be played from a common supply, of which there are always two visible to choose from. These tiles show various features that a player's workers can interact with. To do such actions as harvesting cacao, selling cacao, gaining gold from mines, gaining sun tokens, or improving their village's irrigation or standing at various temples. 
Each player's workers aren't the typical wooden pawns sent out to interact with the jungle tiles, but instead are meeple symbols pre-printed on the second type of tile, the worker tiles. Each player has an identical stack of tiles, each with exactly four printed meeples spread along some or all of its edges. When a player places one of their worker tiles next to a jungle tile, they will get to take the action of that tile once per worker on the side touching the tile. So players will have to determine the best way to orient their worker tiles, as well as the best place to put them on the shared jungle map being built as the game progresses. In Kikau, turns move quickly and involve four things. The active player will place a worker tile from their hand of three. They will fill in any jungle tile spots, if any exist, that now have two sides established by worker tiles, and then they'll activate any workers that find themselves newly next to a jungle tile. Finally, the active player draws back up to their hand of three tiles, and the next player starts their turn. One thing I find particularly interesting about Kakao is that any workers on a place tile activate immediately upon a jungle tile being placed next to them. This means that if you place a jungle tile next to one of your opponent's workers' tiles, any workers along the connecting edge will activate for them. It adds an extra layer to each placement as you attempt to avoid helping out your competition too much while getting as much as you can for yourself, and it also keeps players invested on every turn. Not only are you trying to figure out your next placement, but you can also potentially activate workers on other players' turns depending on where they play. The game is full of satisfying decisions packaged in a super fast playtime. For example, before our last play, my husband set a 20-minute timer while dinner was cooking, and that timer went off just as I was deciding my last placement of the game. Three or four player games will take a little longer than 20 minutes, but not by much, making Kakao a great lunchtime or end-of-the-night game when you don't have tons of time, but you still want to engage your brain. Games with more than two players also add more potential for blocking, and thus make the placement decisions a little trickier because in the two-player you can be sure at least one side of a jungle tile will still be open on your turn. It's just figuring out whether the side that's still open makes sense from an efficiency standpoint. I like the game at all player counts. Two-player puts more focus on planning ahead to optimize every placement, while three or four-player makes the placements a little more focused on how well you can adapt to the board state. But with a hand of tiles to choose from, and with drawing up at the end of your turn, you're able to plan for multiple possibilities. So you don't get huge amounts of aggravation from someone taking the perfect spot from you, and you don't get the amount of downtime you get from games that make planning much harder, like the infamous Five Tribes, or Carcassonne when you play per the rules and only have a single tile to use. Cacao looks beautiful, if very green, on the table, has great components, and it's super quick and easy to both teach and pick up. The insert in the base game is somewhat irritating because it came close to being great but then failed miserably, but the game is good enough that I can ignore the box issues. It's a great addition to any gamer's collection who's in need of clever, fast games, and despite the tiling, we've been able to play it at our local bar without any problems, so I wouldn't be too concerned about space issues if you tend to play in public or if you have a smaller table. It's a game I can't imagine getting rid of due to its meaningful decisions, ability to scale to player count, and perfect playtime for post-work gaming. And any of this sounds appealing to you, then I suggest forget trying, just go ahead and buy a copy. So until next time, I'm busy convention planning here in Durham, but if you're interested in hearing more of my rambling, or yelling at me for telling you to spend more money, you can always find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I have a love-hate relationship with what most people would think of as gateway games. Love? 
because it means I have the means to get someone new into the hobby, or at least have them indulge me in a game night and not have them dread hanging out with me again. Hate? Because I feel like my list of gateways is so limited. What I do have, I don't really feel excited about anymore, and the games I do feel excited about, I'm worried I'll teach it poorly. Guys, my game anxiety runs deep. A few weeks ago, I was invited to a small dinner party at the home of a friend I've had since high school. And when I asked her if I could bring anything, hoping she'd ask me to bake something or ask me to pick up a bottle of wine or two, she uttered the phrase I was dreading. I'd love it if you brought a board game. There would be as many as seven of us, and the only people I knew who would be there were my friend and her husband. None of these people, as far as I knew, were board gamers beyond the Milton Bradley games of our youth. Knowing the company my friend, a grant writer for a local arts organization, keeps, I'd know all are what you would consider cerebral. I also wanted a game where conversations could be had since most of us didn't know each other, so I was leaning towards something co-op, but nothing that seemed to really fit the bill was jumping out at me. I stood in front of my eight game shelves, turned to my husband and said, What do I do? And then I realized that, while not what one would immediately think of as a gateway game, Mysterium is the perfect intro game in this situation. Designed by Oleksandr Nevsky and Oleg Sidorenko and released in 2015 by Asmodee Games, Mysterium is a co-op deductive party game where one player takes on the role of a ghost, attempting to send visions to a crew of psychic mediums to help them figure out the who, where, and how of a murder. These visions are sent through abstract images to each medium, and then those players take turns guessing just what the ghost is trying to clue them into. Spoiler alert, I love playing the ghost. It allows me to teach a game I love and truly sit back and watch people enjoy a game with very little fear of doing it wrong. It's about interpretation, perspective. And when playing Mysterium, I always learn something new about how my fellow players see a thing. Are they more literal? Do they feed off of mood and tone? One person might notice something another doesn't, and that shared discussion is something that seemed absolutely perfect at my dinner party situation. Plus, without fail, at the end of the game, every group I've played with wants to just sit around for about 15 minutes looking at the other cards in the deck because they're so enamored with the artwork. Can't say I blame them. The game is beyond simple to set up and teach, and at my dinner party, I think it took 10, maybe 15 minutes from the time we opened the box to when we were starting the first round. And with the right crowd, Mysterium can allow gamers to literally see games in a way they never thought possible, with an experience that is personal. The only strategy is taking a breath and letting the pictures build a story that means something to you. Mysterium, according to the box, plays two to seven players. I'd like to hear from anyone who's played two-player because I've never really felt like trying it. I have played with as few as three, and honestly, this is one of those games where it truly is the more the merrier, and would be keen to play with six or seven any chance I got, 
but would never shy away from playing it with five or even four. Mysterium retails for about $50, and it's an absolute essential, especially if you're someone who, like me, tends to be the games ambassador in your circle of friends. For 5 by Games, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hi, this is Sarah, and today I'm going to talk about Roll for the Galaxy. Roll for the Galaxy was designed by Wei Hua Huang and Thomas Lehman and published in 2014. As you might guess from the name, Roll for the Galaxy is a re-implementation of Lehman's popular 2007 game, Race for the Galaxy. In Roll for the Galaxy, players collect and roll colored dice. Lots and lots of dice, with custom symbols on each face and a colored plastic cup to roll them in. The dice determine which of five possible actions each player is able to take. In each turn, players assign their dice to actions behind private screens. You select one action to activate, then you place the rest of your dice under the actions they're assigned to. There are rules that sometimes allow you to turn a die to another face so you can focus on the actions you need more. Then everyone lifts their screen simultaneously and reveals their dice placement. But here's the thing. You selected one action. That means you get to use that action, and any other player does too if they had dice assigned to it. But when you select your one action, you also have to guess which actions will be selected by other players. If you can see what Kristen across the table really needs to do, and can guess she'll be selecting that action this turn, you can load up dice under that action and follow her. But if you guess wrong and no one selected that action, those dice were wasted. They go back in your cup for the next turn. The actions allow you to settle or develop, collecting dice on a tile until you can place it in your tableau, where it's worth victory points and may give you more dice or a special ability. Or you can produce goods, represented by dice naturally, on a previously placed tile, or ship the goods to exchange them for cash or victory points. Or you can explore, drawing new tiles out of a bag to be settled or developed on future turns. When any player reaches 12 tiles in their tableau, that turn is finished out and the game ends. There's a lot to love about Roll for the Galaxy. Simultaneous turns move the game along at a snappy pace with little downtime. Games are fairly short, about 45 minutes, but there are still good strategic decisions about which actions to focus on, which tiles to settle, and how to make use of their abilities. While there isn't much interaction in the take-that sense of messing with your opponents, I love the psychology of guessing which actions other players are going to select. The iconography is clearly explained on each tile, no need to memorize symbols, which in my mind is a huge improvement over Race for the Galaxy. And sitting at a table full of people, all shaking cups full of brightly colored little dice, all thunking the cups down on the table at the same time, is just plain fun. It makes the game feel exciting and upbeat. For me, the best part of Roll for the Galaxy is how well it plays with two players. I play a lot of two-player games, and I find that many games are optimized for four, still good at three, but at two they often feel a bit flat. The board is too big, there's no competition for resources, we're each off on our own side of the map doing our own thing for the duration of the game. Two-player role for the galaxy is not like that at all. I've played it with all possible player counts, and at the high numbers, it's a very different game than at the low. At four or five players, someone else is much more likely to select the action you need. In fact, in a five-player game, it's not uncommon for all five actions to be selected. You know most actions will probably be available each turn, so you can ignore your opponents and focus on min-maxing, optimizing your dice, and racing to get the points first. At two players, available actions are much more scarce. 
The game adds a phantom player of a sort, a single die in a cup that you roll to select another action. But even with that, you're likely to get only two or even one available actions in a turn. Understanding your opponent becomes much more important. Figuring out what action they need, either to piggyback off their selection or to avoid selecting actions that will help them at a crucial moment. It feels much more tense. Roll for the Galaxy is the only 2-5 player game I've ever played that I would say is better at 2 than at 4 or 5. One concern about learning Roll for the Galaxy is that since dice are placed in secret, mistakes can be difficult to catch. When I first learned how to play, I made a small mistake in dice placement that made the game much harder for myself. I went on making this mistake over and over, with no idea I was doing anything wrong. Finally, I taught the game to someone with another experienced player at the table who noticed and corrected me. If not for that, I would have continued making the same mistake indefinitely. Like all games that are based on a limited number of tiles or cards, Roll for the Galaxy can start to feel stale when you've played it often enough to remember all the tiles. Fortunately, there's an expansion, Ambition, which adds some new tiles, two new colors of dice, and a couple of new mechanisms. Honestly, I would rather have just had lots more new tiles, but I'm happy for the additional content in the expansion. And it all fits in the original box. Roll for the Galaxy is a fun way to get a lot of strategy in a fairly short amount of time, a great game for those who don't think multiplayer solitaire is a dirty word, and just the thing for anyone looking to roll a lot of dice without worrying about critical hits and misses. And that's Roll for the Galaxy. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not shaking cups full of colorful dice, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Thanks for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5 bygamescom